0: Alright, welcome everyone to School of the Word. Small crowd this morning, but I think that's just a product of the time of the year. May is a busy month. Uh, Vacations and school getting out and graduations and all sorts of things. So, I feel that in my life myself. But um, today we're going to be starting uh, a new study. As Peter mentioned last week, we're going to be going through 2 Peter uh, and We're going to go through this book uh, just like we went through 1 Peter, so not digging into every verse, um, but really getting sort of an overview of the whole book. Uh, I'm going to go through it, It'll probably take a few weeks, look at each of the kind of sections to try to understand how this whole book works together. And, um, and I hope what you're getting out of these kind of overviews um, it's not just a bunch of answers about what's in these books, but, but an idea of how to, to read this book and study it yourself, um, or even to study other books, to see um, the full context of the book as, um, as a help to understand each of the parts that you're reading, each of the sections. And this is just a model of how to read through and study um, God's Word on your own. So I hope that you're encouraged in that, as well as picking up some specific um, information about the books that we're studying. As I've been preparing and reading through 2 Peter, I've really been thinking about it as Peter's farewell address. Um, I think that that's really what he's doing. He's writing this, he says, at the end of his own life and wants to make certain that the faith is going to continue after him. Um, and I think to give a little context for a farewell address, just thought of a couple other farewell addresses that might be um, a, little, a little more familiar. At the end of um, his second term as president, George Washington gave a farewell address. Um, and so he's looking out and deciding that this is the, the end of his public service. He's given all he can to this new nation that he's helped form, first as a general and then as the first president to help them, uh, the different colonies, unite into a nation. Um, and he, he's decided that this is as much as he can give. He's coming to the end of his life, and he wrote a farewell address. Um, he didn't actually give it as a speech, he actually wrote it and had it published because in the days before television and microphones, that was the best way to, to distribute what he had to say. Um, and, and in that address, he starts off by reminding everyone of the common cause that they have been fighting for, the cause of liberty, um, the, the constitution that they had formed to defend their freedoms and, um, and this new nation that they had I'm um, been working for. But then the majority of the address is actually written to address particular threats that he saw to the nation at this time. And, and, and this, was not a, uh, this was still a very young nation. Um, it was only a few years at this point since Washington had had to lead an army to put down a rebellion within the country called the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, and, And the nations around, the big foreign powers, were still a big problem for this country. Yes, they'd won a battle on their own ground, but that said nothing about their ability to send their ships out and trade on the sea and to have a navy and to defend themselves. So they're still very much a small nation facing lots of threats, and that's what the majority of his letter is writing to. Particularly, he addresses problems of factionalism within the country, Um, factionalism that would continue to be a problem, actually represented by the men who were part of his cabinet, who would be the next two presidents. Um, Adams and Jefferson had a very different opinion about how centralized or decentralized the government should be, and that was a big controversy at the time. And um, and he also writes in his address about uh, foreign entanglements, not just the need to um, work with other nations, but to make permanent alliances with these countries that may not have their best interests at heart over time. Um, And so Peter writes to, to deal with these threats because he loves the nation that he has fought for. And he wants the country to deal with and identify and address these threats well. Another farewell address actually in the Bible is the book of Deuteronomy, um, where Moses writes at the end of his life, having walked with this nation for 40 years out of Egypt, through the wilderness, through all of the problems that they encounter in the wilderness, and now they're on the edge of the promised land, and Moses is told he's not going in. And so he turns and addresses the nation and he does the same thing he starts off reminding them of their story of where they have come through he recounts some of the narrative and he tells them of their identity as God's people and the covenant that they have been a part of and then at the end he looks and he warns them again about what lies ahead he says, if you obey and are faithful to this covenant, God will bless you. But if you disobey, God will curse you and destroy you and send you out of this land. And he says, and I know you, you stubborn people. I know where this is going. <laughs> and so we see this pattern in a farewell address of, of a reminder of what they love and then a warning against threats and present problems at the time. And that's what Peter is doing in this book of 2 Peter. You look at this outline, we're going to start off, he's going to start off reminding them of their cause, really of what God has done through Christ in drawing a people to himself. And then the rest of the book is going to be taken up with with some warnings. He's going to tell them to be sure, several times, be sure that you have received what God has given you. Not just that you've thought you've identified with this cause, but that you've really given what God is intending for you to receive. Be sure you know where this testimony comes from. This isn't just something we made up. This is the word of God spoken to you through us, the apostles, and through the prophets. He tells them to be sure in chapter 2 that false teachers will come. In um, chapter 2, as we'll see, is a pretty harsh Chapter as he is writing, not only to warn them about, but to condemn, and as he's describing these false teachers that probably not only would come, but already had come into the church. And then he ends telling them to be sure that Christ will return. Even if he seems slow, even if there are people who are scoffing at the idea that it's been so long that he's still not come back, you really believe he's still coming? Be sure Christ is returning. And so he's writing to the church that he loves. Could you read this in 13 to 15, how Peter describes the purpose of this letter? He says, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is the heart of this letter. This man who has spent his life working for the gospel, working to build up the church, has come to the end and he says, I want you to remember. I want you to be sure. And what you hear in this is the heart of a shepherd. Right? We heard this in First Peter where he writes to a church that is suffering that is persecuted, that is discouraged. And he writes to encourage them, to tell them how the suffering they're experiencing is part of what God is doing. It's the pattern God has been working. It's a, and the way that they endure suffering is a witness to Christ. And that God is certainly going to glorify them for the way that they endure in that time. And, and he's writing to care for those who are suffering. And in 2 Peter, you see the same heart, but into a different context. He's writing to warn them and to deal with threats. And so the tone he's going to give still shows us his love for the church, but it's going to have a harsher edge to it. Particularly, you're going to hear the harsher edge as he's writing about those false teachers who he says will exploit the church. In 2.14, he's about those who are going to entice unsteady souls. And as he writes about those threats to the church that he loves, you're going to hear a harsh tone and a harsh condemnation, but hear in even that the heart of of a pastor who is shepherding and caring for this church that he loves. And also as we read this, recognize that these are not just threats for the first century church. These are recorded in God's word because the spirit wants us to hear these warnings as well. Just like George Washington's threats of political factionalism and foreign issues, those are still problems we face today, right? That wasn't just a problem for the 1700s. That's still a problem for us, just so Peter's warnings here are a problem for us today. We too need to be sure we have received what God is offering. We need to be sure that there will be false teachers. We need to be sure Christ is returning. This is a word not just for the first church. This is an address not just for Peter's context, but for us. The Spirit has recorded for us to read and be warned as well. So as we get into this today, we're going to go through the first 11 verses of Second Peter. And I've got uh, this note about fruit here at the beginning. I'm going to come back to that later, so skip to the next page. And we'll just start with the beginning here. Before we get into the warnings... Peter is reminding us of how much God has given us, of of the cause of the gospel, of what it is that he loves that we are united around, that he wants to defend from the threats that he sees. And here's what he says. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There is so much packed into those verses. Never skip past the intro to an epistle. Um, Some of these things might sound like, yes, we know, yes, we know, but think about how great these things are. What Peter is reminding us we have been called into, to a faith with equal standing to his. The faith that you have is the same faith, the same value, on the same standing as the apostles. That is crazy. (laughs) And what he has promised us is all things that pertain to life and godliness, that we will become partakers of the divine nature. What is that? That's one of those things you read and you're just like, what, what is given to us in this? And and this isn't just an isolated idea. God's self-giving, giving us himself and drawing us into himself is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. Just a quick survey of this. In John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus told us to abide in him. He says, abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We're united to Christ, not just following him, not just living like him, not just being participants in his nation, but we're so united to him, he says, it's like you take a branch and you graft it into another branch and the fibers grow together. Abide in me. That's how closely we are united to Christ. When Paul talks about this idea, he uses the image of a body. 1 Corinthians 6.15, as he is telling the church why they actually should not participate in sexual immorality. His reasoning is, when you participate in a sin in your body, you make the body of Christ sin. This is how united we are Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We are the same. We are united in the one body of Christ. Another frame to talk about this is that we are brought into God's family, the family of the Trinity. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's God's spirit in us that tells us we are God's children. We are his family. We are so closely united to him that actually what he gives to Christ, he gives to us. We inherit with him. And not only are we identified with him, but as we are identified and brought into his family, we are made like him. This is 1 John 3, 2. You see, this is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The children of God are made to be like God, as we will behold God. And this is why First Peter told us we should be holy. Not just because it's a good idea, but because that's what God is like. First Peter fifteen one, fifteen and sixteen. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Be like me. Because why Second Peter, I'm giving you my nature. You're going to become, you're going to be united to me, part of my family. I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you my nature. I'm drawing you in and so you will be like me. This is all of what's caught up in the idea of a divine nature. What Peter loved was not just a new philosophy of living. It was not just a political or cultural or social movement. It was the promises of God drawing people into himself, uniting them with him. This is what Peter has spent his life telling people about and helping people to walk in. God has called us to be united to him. And this, this prompt. if you think about it, it almost sounds a little bit irreverent, right? Like, we are going to become part of God, right? And I could say that carefully and explain all of the ways that, that we should and shouldn't understand that, but, but I don't want to. I want you to feel how shockingly good this is. I want you to feel the scandal of the idea that God would share himself with fallen humanity, That's what Peter intends us to see. That's what's motivating this letter. And that's what he wants to make sure we have really received. That's what he turns to next in verses 5 through 11. How do you know that you are united to God? You start to become like God. He says, for this very reason, because of all that God has done for us, make Here's what he's saying. If God is giving us his nature, then you should be coming like what God is like, holy as he is holy. And, and you see the way he makes this argument tells us that he was a student of Jesus. This is the part I skipped over earlier. If you read back in Luke 6, Peter doesn't use the illustration of fruit, but it's the same logic as what Jesus says. When he says... Wherever this is in my notes, here it is. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For a figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. How do you know what kind of tree this is? You look at its fruit. That's what tells you whether the tree is a fruit tree or not a fruit tree. That's what Peter is telling us to do here. How do you know whether you have received the divine nature? Look at its fruit. Is your life producing virtue? Are you growing in knowledge, in self-control, in steadfastness, in godliness? This is how you know you have received what Christ has given you. And that's why he goes into all of this discussion on making sure your election by making every effort. And and look at the effort that he's expecting here. All right? This isn't just a description that Christians are generally pretty good people. They're people who are continually making every effort to grow in all of these virtues. They don't just have faith, but they're adding to that virtue. And their virtue is added to knowledge. They don't just know things, they do them. They have self-control and they are steadfast through whatever's happening. They grow in godliness. And as they're growing in this self-control and this knowledge, they have brotherly affection. It drives them to love the people around them. And they're always making every effort to increase in all of these things. These aren't just one type of virtue either. This was helpful for me as I read this passage in in college. And I remember I was just dealing with a particular pattern of sin that I just kept going back into over again. And I remember praying about it and saying, God, what am I missing? I feel like I'm just not understanding something about this problem or, or something that I should know or some strategy that I should have. And what God used this passage to tell me is, David, you don't need more knowledge here. You've got knowledge here. You know what's good. You know this is bad. You know why. You know what you need? You need to supplement your knowledge with self-control. Now you just need to do it. We're each going to have strengths in different categories. Some are going to be drawn to knowledge. Some are going to be particularly disciplined. Some are going to be brotherly affection is not going to be a problem for you. You just love people and you love to get around them. What this is showing us is that we should be growing in a variety of virtues, that these go together. This isn't just a list that you pick the best ones out of. These all work together to make us like God, and we should always be adding one virtue to another. It's good. You've, you've got some virtue. You want to do what's right, and you've, you've got feelings about goodness and justice and rightness in the world. Well, you need, you need to add knowledge to that. You need to know some things about wisdom and discernment and the direction God wants us to go. You're, you're a disciplined person. You've, you've got your life in order and you follow your list. You know what you need to add to that? You need to add brotherly affection. Don't just live rightly in your own life, but make, live in such a way that it drives you to care for other people. And I don't think you read this as a list where, where you have to do these in order. Right? There, there's some logic in the order, but, but you're not, you don't have to finish self-control before you move on to steadfastness. Right? You don't wait until you've gotten all the other six to get to love. right? All of these are growing in us at the same time, but they're connected. They grow together. And we should always be growing and never satisfied with where we are now. I know a man, actually in this church, just talking to him, and, um, and, and was struck by this. He, he's a great guy. He's somebody who loves people, loves the Bible. Um, he's just a person that, that you kind of would just want to be more like this guy. Um, but, but he will talk about just being dissatisfied with, with sin problems in his own life and just wondering, why can't I deal with this? Why can't I fix this? Why, can't, why, am, I not, why am I not better in this category? And, and my guess is, if I knew more about the details of those sin struggles, my impulse would be to say, man, calm down. Like, <laughs> I wish I was like you. I wish I had this much joy and self-control in my life as you do. But you know what? He's right. We should never be satisfied with where we are at. We should always be making every effort to grow into all of these virtues because our standard is not, are you better than the people around you? Our standard is the divine nature that we are given, and we should never be satisfied until we have received all that God wants to give us of himself. But But I know the caveat, the question then is: is, is, what does Peter mean here that in this way I'll provide for you an entrance into the kingdom? Let's just read the whole thing, 10 and 11. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In what way? What does he mean here? Now remember, he's also just said, back up in verse 3, that God has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we want to ask, which one is it? Has God done everything? Are we saved because of what God has done through Jesus Christ? Or are we provided an entrance to the kingdom because we make every effort to grow in godliness and to confirm our own election? And what Peter is saying is that he doesn't see a contradiction between those two things. Those are not actually different things. Because what is it going to look like if God gives you his divine nature? He's given you everything that you need. He's given you himself. He's given you his holiness. What is it going to look like if he's done that? It's going to look like you start to look more like him. You start to have a desire to make every effort to grow in these things. Uh, just a, a silly illustration from this week. I, I was preparing for this message, and um, and I just felt earlier in the week that I needed to work a little harder and get ahead in this message, and just had some time, and I just need to be diligent. I didn't really want to do it at that point, but just felt like oh, I should just I just should work on this. I just should get to this next step and get ahead. And you know what? It turns out on Saturday. I had no time to look at this at all. Normally, I get to go over this one extra time. It's just a very busy day, and I didn't get to do that. But I was done. I was ahead of schedule. Why? Well, I think because God had given me wisdom to know I need to get ahead in this schedule. And what did it look like when he did that? It looked like me making the extra effort to get ahead in this work. Those are not different things. God gave me the direction to work and get ahead, and I did it. That's not a contradiction. This is the same thing. You can't be given the nature of God and not be transformed. It's your transformation that tells you what kind of tree you are, but it doesn't make you that kind of tree. You can't go add your own effort and just make yourself into an apple tree if you're a pine tree. Something else has to transform that. But if you're an apple tree, you'll know that because you'll put out apples. That's the idea that Peter is getting at here. And he's writing this not because he's trying to give us a theological puzzle to unpack. I don't think he was as interested in the interaction between sovereignty and free will as we like to be. He was writing this because he's writing a warning. If you read ahead to chapter 2, you'll find that there are some false teachers that have come into the church. And if you look at their way of life, it's not bearing this kind of fruit. He describes them as greedy, sensual, full of selfish ambition. They're just using the faith for their own ends. They're claiming to be Christians. They're identifying with Christ. But if you look at their life, it's clear they are not growing in holiness. And so Peter is writing this because he is concerned that people might think that they could be in Christ and receive all that God has given them and not be transformed. And so he's writing, be sure you've really got what God has given you. Because in this way, by the work he's doing in you to draw him to yourself and make him like you, you will be saved. And if that's not happening then you may not have received what he is offering. He doesn't want them to be like the fig tree in Matthew 21. You remember this, where Jesus, as an illustration of the Pharisees, he finds this fig tree, and it it has flowers, and it looks like it's producing fruit, but when he walks over to it, there's no fruit on the tree. And he curses it, and it never bears fruit again. And that's a picture of the Pharisees, those who claim to be religious had all the flowers of faith and no fruit. Peter is saying, don't be like that. Don't claim, don't sit in this room. Don't, don't base your certainty of your faith on the, whether you go to church, how often you go to church, what doctrines you agree with, right? Notice what his certainty is not based on. He doesn't say, go back and look, and can you tell me a story of the day that you prayed a certain prayer and agreed to a certain set of doctrines, or that you've been walking in a church ever since. Don't go tell me what it looks like on paper. This is how you know. Have you received what Christ has given you? Go look at your life. Is it producing fruit? Are you making every effort to receive what God has given you, to become like him. And this is the message the Spirit intends for us today. It's what you do with a passage like this. Don't just try to work out the theological puzzle, but use it as a mirror on your own life. Are you sure? If you look at your own life, are you making every effort to continue growing in godliness? Can you tell me stories about what God has been producing in you lately? the spiritual transformation that he's been doing in you? Are you discontent with areas of your life where sin still reigns, where you don't yet look like God, where you haven't received everything he wants to give you for those circumstances? Are you continually increasing in the attributes of godliness? And one thing I think is encouraging is how, just how simple this test is. Right? You don't have to be able to explain to me the theological nuances of free will and sovereignty. You don't have to be able to read through or, or defend a, a biblical theology or a systematic theology book. You don't have to be an expert Christian to know that you are getting what God intends for you. We can all do this. We can all grow in what God is giving us. And no matter what your answer, and if you, if you use this passage and you use it as a mirror on your own life, or you use this to assess the life of people around you, you should never end looking at your own effort. The point Peter here is not to say, if you're not doing it, just work harder. That's not his point. He's not saying, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Because remember, all that we need comes not from us, but from the one who gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you look at your own life and you say, I'm not sure, that I'm growing. I'm not sure I'm being transformed. I'm concerned that I or my children or my neighbor or people around me are not growing in the ways that Peter is describing here. The answer is not work harder. The answer is go back to the one who will transform them from a pine tree to an apple tree, who will make them into himself. You can't just go tape apples onto the tree. That doesn't make it an apple tree. You can't just go add your own effort or your own works and say, now there's fruit. That's not how it works. You need to be transformed. And God is willing and desiring to do that. That's what he has done. And if you look at your life and you do see fruit, you do see this is what God's been doing to me lately. You can hear stories about this. You go to small group and you can share. This is what God showed me through his word and how to apply to my life. Make sure you're not ending that on your own effort either. Remember, you got all of those things not from yourself. That's God's spirit working in you to transform you into himself. That's amazing. It's not about us. We need to remember that that's where this comes from. But in any case, what Peter is concerned here, what we should be concerned that we have received, that those around us have received, is the great gifts God is offering us when he gives us himself. He's transforming us into his image to bring us to dwell with him forever. That's what Peter is writing here to defend. And, and as we'll see, he goes through the rest of this book. Next week, we'll look at um, the foundation on which that is built, and then more warnings about defending what God wants to do in his people and his church. So hopefully, you'll come back for the rest of this study.